Would you just continue to be in prayer with me? Father, we just sang, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sang about wandering in a desert, dry and barren place. Father, the reality is that many of us come into this place today with a great deal of pain and suffering in our life. And we don't understand it and we have questions about it. What's going on? What's happening? How are you using this in my life? So God, this morning as we go to your word, would you open our eyes? Help us to see how so many times you have used pain and suffering for your glory. Open our hearts and eyes to that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Kip Docterman, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. We've been talking this summer about habits of grace, and we've been looking at things like the Word, prayer, worship, giving, service, proclamation, and fellowship. And you may look at those items and say, okay, I understand those as habits of grace. I understand those as disciplines of the Christian faith. But then you come this morning and you open your worship folder and you see suffering? Really? Suffering? How is suffering a habit of grace? I mean, we live in America. That's antithetical to many people in America. We want peace and comfort and prosperity and abundance. We push off suffering. We avoid suffering. We don't want anything to do with suffering. I was at an apologetics conference one time, and the uh, speaker was addressing the issue of evil, pain, and suffering. So he asked the simple question of the audience. How many of you have grown in your relationship with God more intimate relationship with God. You know God better through pleasure and comfort. Not a, not a person raised their hand. How many of you through pain and suffering? 2,000 people. Yeah. We understand as much as we don't like it, we understand that God uses suffering in our life. Now, I'm going to define suffering in two large categories as we get started. The first category is that I'm calling uninvited suffering. Uninvited suffering is that suffering that comes to us from the outside. We have no control over this kind of suffering. Uninvited suffering is, uh, and I just blanked. Uninvited suffering, sickness, disease, Romans 8. The world is a world of decay. And we feel that decay in our bodies. Our bodies break down. They don't work like they used to work. Or maybe they never worked correctly at all from the beginning. And we've been suffering with some type of physical affliction from birth. We are sinful people. We sin against one another. So there's suffering in relationship as we intentionally or accidentally harm each other in our families, in our marriages, and yes, even in the family of God, we have estranged and broken and severed relationships which causes suffering in our life. Another type of uninvited suffering would be persecution. We are told to expect persecution as followers of Christ. That it is going to happen. 
But the reality is you can be persecuted for any worldview that somebody takes opposition against. You can be persecuted for your skin color. You can be persecuted because you live on the wrong side of a geographical line. These are all types of uninvited suffering, suffering that comes unto us. It's out of our control. The other category is the opposite. It's invited suffering. Invited suffering are those places where we step into people's pain and hardship and suffering, knowing that we are going to suffer. Invited suffering could be a missionary who says, you know, I will go proclaim Christ in a hostile environment knowing that I could be persecuted, yes, even killed. But for the cause of Christ, it is worth it. I will invite uninvited suffering into my life because it is worth it. It's a couple who stands at an altar and takes vows for richer, poorer, better, and worse, sickness, and in health. And when sickness comes, we don't turn away from the spouse and walk out. But we stand with them. We nurse. We love. We care. We have invited uninvited suffering into our lives. Well, the question is, with either of these two categories, invited or uninvited suffering, how do we respond to it? What, what do we do when suffering comes into our life? Do we become bitter, angry? Do we become grumbly and complaining? Or is suffering something that drives you to the cross? Is suffering something that drives you to God? I have known people in my life, both who have experienced suffering beyond what I can imagine. I have never experienced their kind of suffering. And one person's response was to shake his fist at God and say, you owe me an explanation. You need to walk through these doors and answer my questions. And until you do that, God, I'm done with you. And he turned his back and he walked away from God. And another family in the exact same type of situation, they ran to God like a frightened child who jumps in his parents' arms and can't get close enough to him. They want to crawl in your skin they can't get close enough and say, God, you're my only hope. You're my only strength. You're the one who's going to sustain me, even though I don't understand what's happening here. How do you respond to suffering? Does it push us to God or does it push us away from God? Now, before we address some of those, what I'd like to first do is look at some misunderstandings, I think, that are too often uh, in the Christian community. And there are three misunderstandings that I'm going to talk about. The first is, you will often hear, the reason you suffer is you lack faith. You suffer because you lack faith. And what we do is we take suffering and faith, and we put it on a teeter-totter. And there is a direct, mathematically calculated correlation between our faith and our suffering. And if our suffering is too high, it's just, you need more faith. If you had more faith, your suffering would go away. The problem with that is you start putting faith in your faith and not faith in God. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to a mountain, be cast into the sea and it would be moved. Why? Because you had great faith? No, you had little faith in a great God. It's the object in which our faith is placed that is important. 
Look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 32. The author in Hebrews 11 has been going through this entire chapter, and he has been saying, through faith, through faith, through faith. And he recounts all these people of the Old Testament. And he gets the end, and he says, I don't have enough time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith, listen, and they'll say, this is what happens with faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, and they stop. And they say, see, faith is conquering, defeating, winning, gaining, victorious. If you have faith, that's the way your life will be. But they have to throw out the rest of the chapter. It's got to be tossed. Because the very next verse says, others were tortured, uninvited suffering, and refused to be released, invited suffering, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, while still others were chained and thrown into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And lest we forget that that whole paragraph started with, through faith, he summarizes the entire chapter and says, these were all commended for their faith. They all had great faith. It didn't matter whether they were put to death by the sword or escaped the edge of the sword. Their suffering is not a direct correlation to your faith. We need to destroy the faith-suffering teeter-totter. second misunderstanding we can have is that well, God's punishing me. Either I have feel like I have done something that is so egregious that God's grace is insufficient. He really can't. Well, maybe he forgave me, but I'm still going to pay. We may project our punitive punishing parents. Try that. Project that on God. Parents who may say to you, I'll never let you forget this. You'll never live this down. And we start thinking that, okay, God's punishing me. I'm suffering because I did something wrong. This is what the disciples saw in, in, in John 9. They see a man who was blind at birth. And they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, he's being punished. That's a penalty for something that was done wrong. So who messed up, God, he or his parents? Tell us, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? No, no, it was neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now we'll get back to what it was in just a minute. Look at this quote. Behind all suffering of the godly is a high purpose of God, and behind it all is an afterwards of glorious enrichment. Such suffering, as we learn from the book of Job, is not judicial but remedial, not punitive but corrective, not retributive but disciplinary, not a penalty but a ministry. God is not 
punishing us. But he does discipline us. Flip over to Hebrews 12, the next chapter over. Hebrews 12, verse 7, the author says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And then if you jump down to verse 10 there, look at what he says. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It is God's grace that he disciplines us. Why? It's for our good that he can pour out on it his holiness, his righteousness, and his peace. God graciously wants to give that to us, and he knows that one of the ways we get that is through discipline, and that is through hardship. But God is not a punitive, punishing God. The third misunderstanding we can have is once we realize that God works in suffering, then we can start to say, I need to suffer in everything. And we can turn suffering into a virtue. I need to do everything hard. Everything has to be difficult. I have to suffer. I can't eliminate any of it. I've got to take it on. And we start getting proud about how much suffering we're doing. The problem is, as you read in Scripture, you know, Paul says, take this thorn in my flesh and take it from me. Jesus in the garden says, if this cup could be passed from me, do so. We read throughout all of Scripture places where people say, protect us from persecution. Keep it away from us. Guard us. We don't need to take, turn suffering into a virtue. Yes, God can use suffering, but he can use a lot of other things as well. So if God can use suffering in our life, how does he? What are some ways that we see that God uses suffering in our life? I think the very first one is that through our suffering, the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed through our suffering. Look at Acts 16. Turn to Acts 16, verse 19. Paul talks in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.1, he says that he had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. Philippi was not a vacation resort on Paul's world tour. Okay? This was a place of deep suffering. Acts 16 tells us about this. It starts in verse 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. After Paul has cast out the spirit from the slave girl that allows her to foretell the future. And in verse 19 we read, When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing the city in an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks severely flogged. How did we respond? I want my call to my lawyer. I'm going to sue. False imprisonment, not due, due, due process, right? 
Now, what is it we see Paul and Silas do? Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Is that your first response? Praying and singing hymns to God. Why? Because God is their hope. God is their source. God is their strength. They go to God in their suffering. Don't miss the rest of that verse, that little sentence there that might be a throwaway sentence. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Don't miss that. The other prisoners heard the prayers. They heard the singing. And they felt the ground shake. Right? Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And we later read that the household did come to faith and the jailer who at one moment was ready to take his life ends up giving his life to Christ. And we have no idea the impact of that lineage in history of how many people came to faith through that family. And we also have no idea what happened to the prisoners. They heard Paul and Silas praying and singing. They felt the earthquake. They saw God intervene in their life. They saw how they responded to suffering. And the gospel is proclaimed through our suffering. Now, imagine you're a Philippian. You were in the city, you felt the earthquake, you heard the story. Now you receive a letter from Paul, and we read in Philippians 1, verse 11, verse 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that the, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And I can imagine myself sitting there going, yep, there's Paul. He's doing it again. He's getting himself in prison. He's getting a captive audience of guards and he's proclaiming the gospel again. The whole palace guard, the furtherance of the gospel. And it is happening because of Paul's suffering. The the. God can use our suffering to proclaim the gospel. The second thing that I see that God can do through our suffering is that the body of Christ is built up. Go on to the very next verse. In verse 14, we read, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Confidence? Boldness without fear. Why? Because of Paul's chains. They've seen how God has protected Paul. They've seen how God has carried Paul, sustained Paul. They see how Paul rejoices in his suffering. They see how Paul is constantly pointing to God. And they say, if God can do that for Paul, he can do it for me. 
and they become emboldened, and the body of Christ can be built up as we watch the faith of others. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1. We see both proclamation and faith building here. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. You see that? The gospel rang out from them. They were following Paul who was following Christ and now they've become a model and their faith has gone on and other people are following them and we link arms with each other with our faith and we boldly go forward as we see God caring for each other through our suffering. Remember, that all happened in spite of severe suffering. The body of Christ is built up. Your faith is an encouragement to another. Look at Romans 11. Excuse me, Romans 1, verse 11. Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you a spiritual gift to make you strong. What is it, Paul? That you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Our faith is an encouragement to the body of Christ. People see the suffering that people go through and they are encouraged by it and strengthened by it. A third thing that I see that God does through our suffering is God is glorified. God is glorified. Let's go back to John 9. So the question was raised, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus replies, no, it was neither of them. But this has happened that the work of God might be displayed in their life. That God might be displayed in his life. Born blind all these years. He's an adult now. Why has he been going through all these years of blindness, all the suffering that he has had to put up with so that God can be displayed in his life? And God heals him, and he gains his sight back. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4.20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. He concludes Philippians with that, that statement, and we may say, well, That's because Paul just received an offering from Epaphroditus and he's thankful and things are pretty good. No, I don't just think so. You see, we refer to Philippians as the book of joy, but we got to understand that joy comes through a lot of suffering. And if we back up to Philippians 1, verse 19 and 20, Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, what? So now also Christ will be magnified in my life, my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, no, whatever the suffering is in my life, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, be glad and rejoice, he says. In suffering, God can be glorified. Now notice two things. The blind man received healing in this life. His suffering ended in this life. And God was glorified in it. But Paul says, you know what? If I die, God can be glorified in that. And yes, my suffering will end too. God can be glorified in both. Well, we've been talking about uninvited suffering. But what's this invited suffering stuff? (laughs) I can give you 
uh, dozens of reasons why you should not invite suffering into your life. I've got a tightly ordered, structured life. It hums along just fine. Don't mess it up. Okay? If I, if I get involved in somebody else's sufferings, what's it going to cost me? Time, energy, resources, physical health? Will I really do any good? Will it make a difference? Uh, okay, all right, maybe I should get involved in suffering, but if I know it will turn out good, then I'll get involved. I don't want to get involved if it's not going to turn out good. How do we do that? I can only think of one, well, I can think of a couple of reasons. But the main reason I would tell you of why do we step into suffering, why do we invite suffering into our life, and it's because it is at the heart, the core, the nature of God to step into our suffering. If we look throughout Scripture, we see that that is what God does. He has stepped into our suffering. Look at Philippians 2. In this passage, I see seven things that Christ does, none of which are for his benefit. All of them are Christ condescending himself to me to step into our suffering, to redeem us from the suffering we're in. And Paul says as he leads off in it, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And God enters into our pain and enters into our suffering. You know, if you get ready to enter into some pain and suffering of others, I'm sure you'll have some good friends that will come up to you and say, don't do it. Don't do it. It's, not your, it's not your problem. Don't mess with it. Stay out of it. They made the mess. Let them fix it. You know, just avoid it. I am so glad that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that in Genesis 3, I don't read a conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, don't go. Stay out of it. None of your business. They made the mess. Let them fix it. Right? No. What do they do? God provides the offering. God provides the sacrifice, the covering, and God provides the ultimate solution. God enters into our suffering. It is at his nature and core to do so. Here's an example of somebody who got it. Philippians 2, 29 and 30, Epaphroditus, sick to the point of death. God had mercy on him. Philippians are worried about him. Paul says, I'll send him to you. And he says to them, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Why, Paul? Why should we hold Epaphroditus in esteem? Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his own life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Why did he do it? For the work of Christ. To what extent was he willing to get involved? To the point of death. And what was he trying to do? Supply what was lacking. Epaphroditus understood it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. A second thing that can happen 
when we walk into invited suffering. I said earlier the gospel is proclaimed through suffering. I don't want you to get the idea that the gospel is just proclaimed out like this, like I'm the hub and it just goes out like spokes on a wheel. It doesn't. The gospel is proclaimed to me. When we step into suffering, the gospel will be proclaimed to you and me. Our family became involved in the foster adoptive world seven years ago. One of the things you will learn in the foster adoptive world that is just the nature of the beast, that when you try to blend family systems, they don't always go together so well. And if you don't understand that, how about if you take a vacation, small cabin, extended family for a month? Does that give you the warm and fuzzies or does that raise the hair on the back of your neck? Because family systems don't go together that well. There's bucking, there's resistance that happens. And you may be talking to somebody about what's going on in your life, and I've heard other people say about the child, don't they understand how much you love them? Don't they understand how much you're trying to help them? How much you care about them? Don't they understand that you're trying to show them a new way, a better way? Don't they understand that they have resources available to them now they never would have had available to them before? Why do they resist you? Why do they buck against you? And you may get all proud and puff your chest up and feel like somebody's tap, slapping you on the back, or like our family, you may feel the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder, saying, hey, Kip, don't you know how much your Heavenly Father loves you? Don't you know how much He wants the best for you? Don't you know how much he's just trying to show you a new way, a better way? Don't you understand that he has the resources of heaven available to you? Why do you buck him? And in my adoption, the gospel was preached to me because when we adopted, I learned that I am the adopted child. I learned about my adoption in Christ. The gospel can be proclaimed to you and to me in that. Another thing that will happen is God will soften your heart and he will open your eyes to things that you just didn't see before. Many of you have been praying for us as a family. We have been for 13 months now, started a year ago, July, trying to get a ruling on a case. And we have been to court and postponed and to court and postponed many times. Last Tuesday, we were in court again, attempt number five to get a ruling on this case. We were postponed again. Fortunately, it was just till Thursday. So Thursday, we were there for attempt number six. And on the sixth attempt, we finally got the ruling that we were looking for. And people have expressed their joy and their gratitude and their thankfulness to God that that has been ruled that way. And we are, and we are grateful, and we delight in it. But as I sit in court and I hear the ruling coming down, it's bittersweet, folks, because it's coming out of another family being torn apart. And your heart aches for it. I don't care whether you think it's right or wrong. Or that, that doesn't matter. The reality is our joy is coming out of the pain of another. And I see that and it hurts. While we were in court, before we went into the courtroom, we were in the waiting room. 
And uh, most of you haven't been there. You're lucky. It's a dark place. The weight, every time I go there, I just feel the weight of darkness in that place, of brokenness in that place. While my daughter and I are sitting in, court, uh, in the waiting room on Thursday, a weird day, down to our right is a mother screaming at her 17-year-old daughter that she wants to disown her, give up her rights, get her. I don't want anything to do with her anymore. And it's such a loud confrontation going on there that the bailiffs have to come out and intervene. Down on our left, there is a family, some type of big family unit, don't know what's happening, some kind of custody issue. But one fig person figured they're going to solve the problem. They took the child and walked out unbeknownst to anybody. And they started going, well, where's the child? Well, where's so-and-so? Well, they said they were going to the cafeteria. They're not there. They searched the building. They can't find her. A bench warrant is put out for her arrest for kidnapping. And you're sitting here going, oh my gosh, I'm hearing the lawyers talking behind us and the brokenness. And all the time that this commotion is going on, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at a gal sitting right over here. She's got her phone out and doing her makeup, making her hair look all pretty. Like, okay, well, you know, maybe that's how they do it nowadays. And, and she wants to look at her phone, and she's got to look good for the judge. Okay, I'll cut her some slack. No, no. A few minutes later, it's the selfie shoot. And she's back there, pointed lips and perplexed and smiley. And all these things. Fifteen minutes, she's doing a selfie shoot. And I'm sitting there going, why are you here? Are you here because you're losing your kids and you're doing a selfie shoot? Are you serious? And just when I thought it was over, evidently she didn't get the response when she posted it that she wanted of her pictures because 45 minutes later we did selfie shoot number two. And I just wanted to ah, scream, what are you doing? And we see the brokenness around us. But here's what I want you to know, folks. We may laugh, we may be astonished, but that gal is a mirror. Because there are areas in my life I am just as broken and just as blind to my brokenness. We are all broken people and blind to the brokenness. And when you step into suffering, God will open your eyes and help you see those through other people. Your prayer life is going to change. You will understand your inadequacies, your dependence on God, and you'll understand you're not in control when you step into other people's suffering. And because you are not in control, there are things that will happen that you just don't think are good. We've had little miss, I'll call her, in our home for three months. We picked her up from the hospital. For the last two months, we've been told they're going to move her. She's still with us. The longer she stays with us, the more painful that prospect of moving becomes. Now, Thursday... My daughter and I are in court receiving good news. And I text my wife and family to let them know what the good news is. And I get some rejoicing back. I get no response from my wife. Why? You know where my wife was? My wife was on the other side of town with little miss doing this. Handing her over for a, a, a visitation 
transition visitation to people you don't know. And her heart is breaking as we're wanting to embrace one child and squeeze his eyeballs out because he's got a forever family coming. And on the other side, we're handing one over and we go, God, what's going on here? What are you doing? Is this really good? People will ask us, is that good? That she's going to be moved? Whose perspective do you want? Do you want mine? Or do you want God's? Because if you ask me, this isn't good. I'm still waiting for God to tell me if this is good or not. I'm still waiting. I came across the story, and because of this situation in our life, it resonated with us. It was about a family. Uh, The person who writes the story was 17 at the time, and her family had fostered a little girl who had been in their home for nine months, and during that nine months, she had her first birthday, her first steps, her first words, and all the things that happened as part of a young child developing but the court ordered that she was to go back to her, her mom. And after a visitation period, the day finally comes that the social worker comes and takes the child, and this gal has the child out there, and the social worker is having to pry the fingers out of her neck as she buries her head in, in her sister and is screaming and, and clutching to her hair and her clothes. And you see the social worker carrying away this crying girl, and she sits in the car and she looks at you with eyes that say, why aren't you doing something? And your heart breaks, and it hurts, and you're mad at God, and you don't understand, why are you not intervening? Why do you let this happen? This is not good. Then we read the story. Little Katie was the girl's name. And the sister writes, because my mother built a good relationship with Katie's mother, we were able to continue to babysit her frequently over the next five years. Look how long it is. She spent many weekends with us. Katie gained a little brother, Jake, and he was added to our weekend fun. They went to church with us on Sundays, vacation Bible school in the summer. Then when Katie's mother took a job in the other part of the state, our weekend visits ended. But later, we learned that because Katie was used to going to church with us, she nagged her mom to take her to church. Her mom finally gave in and attended church with her children. Eventually, mom, Katie, and Jake all came to know Christ as their personal Savior. And suddenly, I saw the bigger picture that God had in mind all along. And she says, Later, she says, I wanted to save a child. God wanted to redeem a family. And there are times when things happen, suffering and pain comes into our life, and we don't understand it, and we don't get what's going on. It's because we don't have God's perspective. You want the greatest example of that? Go to the cross. Go to the cross. Jesus is arrested. He's tried. He's flogged. He's crucified, killed. And what do we read about the emotional state of the disciples at that time? They're perplexed. They're confused. They're frightened. They're scared. They're hiding. They're denying. This is not what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. Folks, what do we call that Friday today? Anybody? Good. 
good. Why? Because it was part of God's plan all along. We have different perspective. We look back. Anybody here that's a follower of Christ that wants to do away with the cross? You want to get rid of Christ's suffering? Say, Christ, I wish you never had to suffer that. Let's get rid of it. No. No, we understand it now because we have a different perspective than the disciples had at the time. And that's the way we are. We walk through suffering and we have a different perspective. We don't see what God's always doing. Often when we're in those situations, the verse people want to quote to us and often quote to us, and I love this verse. It's a great verse. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I've memorized the verse. I love the verse. It's a great verse. But let me give you a hint, folks. If I'm ever in deep suffering and you come up and quote that verse to me, duck, because I may hit you. And I don't mean to be disrespectful or anything, but in the time of my pain and suffering, it just doesn't resonate with me doesn't risk. I am in pain. I am hurting. I need something more. So go four verses farther. Romans 8.32. We read it this morning. We read it this morning. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? Graciously give you all things. And say, God, I'm hurting. I don't understand what's going on. I'm in pain here. I need peace. The God of peace will come to you. God, I've been suffering for decades. This has been going on forever. I am weary. I am tired. I need strength and endurance. And the God of all comfort, the God of all strength will pour that out on you. You're despaired. This seems hopeless. I don't know how this is going to work out. The God of hope can fill you. If you lost your joy because of the suffering, God can give it to you. I would ask that you just bow your head right now, close your eyes. What is it you need from God? What's going on in your life? How can God meet you this morning? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Run to the cross. Understand the suffering on the cross. How God can use it to his glory. And how he graciously wants to give you what you need. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He walked it. God, would you meet us this morning in our need? You know what's going on in each life in this room, Father. Would you just minister to each one of us now with the very thing that we need from you? Continue to just talk to the Lord for a moment as we close.